Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. thrilling, beautiful song that is. And what a beautiful, beautiful voice she has. Incredible. The perfect person to sing that song. Um, I know Billy Taylor, a jazz uh, composer and uh, pianist, um, wrote that, but I don't know who wrote the lyrics. Maybe he wrote the lyrics. <coughs> um, the song never just it never gets tired for me. I love that song. And it's got so much, dis- you know, I mean, it's talking about everybody all the time. Everybody. Uh, particularly she sings it a black woman, you know, who had God knows how much trouble in her life because she was a black woman, um, although she might have had other problems too, wound up in Europe, Nina Simone, trying to do what she needed to do over there. Um, well, 
Uh, up where I live, uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, uh, there, are, the other, there are people graduating, mostly from Columbia. I'm right near Columbia University, and there are thousands and thousands of people graduating from Columbia University. I think it's one of the largest universities in the country. Maybe there's 30,000 people enrolled there. Uh, about half of them probably are Asian. They are uh, Chinese, mostly, and Korean and Japanese. Um, and I noticed uh, something when I, everybody's walking around with their blue gowns on. Light blue is the color, light blue and white. And they're all walking up and down Broadway right next to where I live. Uh, um, and it's more women than men, more women than men. It really is very clear that up at Columbia, as you look at the graduates, or if I sometimes I take a walk up Broadway, there's more women than men enrolled there and graduating from them. And um, this is definitely a sign of the modern times. I mean, if you've lived, <clears throat> for better or for worse, as long as I have, uh, this is not something you would have seen. If I... If I was up there when I was 25, if I lived up there and I saw the graduates, uh, it would be about, uh, I'm guessing, maybe uh, 80% men. And things have really, really changed. I mean, you know, for, well, actually, I see all these women. One thing I wonder about, and the men, the, all the graduates, I wonder where the jobs are. What kind of jobs are they going to get? Are there any jobs at, at all in the world? <laughs> I guess there are, but... Uh, uh, these people are really highly trained, and Columbia is a famous place. It's got a tremendous reputation. So probably uh, a lot of college graduates are going to have a hell of a time finding a job, but anybody from Columbia is more likely to get a job than most other college graduates, more likely to get a job. So seeing all these women, you know, I am sort of aware now. I am aware because I've seen this span of history in decades how much more women are able to do to achieve now than they used to. Um, at least that's what I see in New York City, and I'm very parochial that way. I assume, though, it's it's more or less the same in, in the rest of the country, but there are certainly parts of the country where it's not the same, and uh, there are certain groups of people where it's not the same. Um, anyhow, so seeing all these women, you know, with these bright, shining futures and uh, with all this education and looking forward to going out in, the, in, the, in life and not just, uh, you know— um, Get married and have kids, but uh, but having a real career, having a life, having really achieve what they really want to, you know. I wish I could be all that I can be, like the song. And this is not like it was in the fifties. This is definitely not the fifties. That's for sure. In my neighborhood where I lived, out in Queens, the men went to work every day and the women stayed home. That's the way it was. The men were tough guys. They were responsible, decent guys for the most part. Some of them drank a little too much. Some of them had bad war experiences. Some of them were pissed off, sort of permanently pissed off from, uh, <clears throat> from going through the war. A lot of them were veterans of the war, not just, um, not just uh, in the, in the uh, Army or Navy or Air Force or Marines, but a lot of them were combat vets, and there was a lot of difficulty, but you didn't see it, uh, and people didn't talk about it that much. Um, it was sort of kept to the house. But later on, when you got to know people out there, and you had friends, and you got older, and people talked about their parents, there was one or two guys that were, uh, you know, they went out there and they worked every day, but uh, they were given a drink when they got home. And these were, they were tough with their kids, these guys. Like I say, they've been through the Depression, and uh, they've been through the war, seen everything, endured a tremendous amount. And they were really tough with their kids. They were tough with their kids. Uh, and this is uh, the, the kids, my generation, 
produced a lot of uh, revolutionaries of all different sorts, and, and they were also the hippies, you know, the hippies. Um, but the women, too, the women, it's not just the men uh, that I grew up with. The women were also tough, people from this generation. They also had endured, you know, obviously the Depression and then dealing with the, <clears throat> the horrors of the war on the home front, you know, what's going to happen, what happened to men that were in their family. But basically, the women, you know, in the 50s out in Queens there, they, they stayed home and took care of the house and brought up the kids. They just took it for granted because it had always been that way, and that was, the way, that was where they belonged. It didn't seem like it would ever change. <clears throat> didn't like it would ever change. And the same with the girls and boys, you know, with the kids, my, uh, my uh, contemporaries. The girls and boys in school, straight through high school, actually, the girls were not necessarily expected um, in, my, you know, in my part of the world to go to college. And I think that was the same way in the 50s all over the country, that they were not expected to go to college. Uh, girls that uh, <clears throat> went to work were usually secretaries or nurses or waitresses. Maybe they were administrative assistants, that kind of thing. I remember there was a, a typing class in my high school, almost entirely populated by girls. Um, Andrew Jackson High School. We had 6,000 kids in this school, and they went in three separate shifts, three separate shifts, and there was hardly any room to sit there. Very crowded place. Um, but there were, you know, there was a shop, there were shop classes, shop classes where you learned how to make a hammer and saw and make belts and mm, machinery, you know, so, uh, you know, like a simple machinery, and uh, you made, uh, you know, wristbands and all kinds of other things. And Everybody in there was a boy. You didn't see any girls in shop class. And in the typing class, probably every single person in that class was a girl because they were expected to learn how to type because that's the kind of job they were going to get later on. They weren't going to be uh, psychologists. They weren't going to be scientists. They weren't going to be, um, they weren't gonna be uh, you know, lawyers or doctors. They were going to be secretaries and a lot of secretaries, and they had to learn how to type. And for some reason... I don't know why, but I wound up in this typing class. I do not understand what I was doing in this typing class. It was just me uh, and maybe 28 girls in there. And, um, and was, I don't know if it was a punishment for something I did because I was always screwing up in school. I was always in the dean's office or um, uh, talking when I shouldn't be talking and uh, hanging out in the hallways when I shouldn't have been. And maybe they thought, see, then, <clears throat> this is part of the 50s thinking. Maybe they thought it would humiliate me to be in an all-girls class. And I did feel sort of humiliated. I, feel, uh, I felt like I was, uh, and this is all part of the 50s attitude, uh, I felt like I was being uh, put in with the girls, which is actually being sort of put down from being a boy. You dig? I mean, this is, this is the way it goes, right? On the other hand, um, yeah, I was embarrassed about it, but on the other hand, and I, I also, uh, just because I was perverse in school anyhow, and especially resentful of being in this class, I never learned how to type more than 15 words a minute, 15 words a minute. So that, you know, nobody was going to make me into a secretary, right? But uh, later on, I, I can type better. I taught myself how to type. Um, on the other hand, in the class, there was a lot of girls to look at. So that was fine with me. Yeah. Ultimately, the goals for girls, the goal for girls and young women in, back in the 50s was to find a man to marry, have kids, and be a good wife and mother. That's it. Some families encouraged their girls to go to college, usually because of money problems. They went to the city colleges. You know, uh, they were free in those days. And, um, you know, city, uh, Hunter, Queens, Brooklyn College. 
And if they went to um, these colleges, <clears throat> they were going to become teachers or social workers. That was about it. There was really nothing much else they were going to do uh, unless they wanted to study something that they liked, like uh, English or something else, uh, still with the thought that they would get married, but they didn't want to get married so soon, so early. But uh, that was the, all, the goal that loomed over everything. And uh, the girls and the boys in the neighborhood and on the streets, um, it, it was completely divided. <clears throat> boys were little men and girls were little women. That's just the way it was. Boys had crew cuts and uh, they wore white T-shirts and they might as well have been little military recruits. And the girls were little women. They always wore dresses. Once in a while they would wear uh, jeans or something. But they always wore, basically they wore dresses. And that was that. Any... Uh, deviance, to use a certain word from this, was considered subversion of the right order of things. Kids who didn't toe this American party line, they were ridiculed, shamed, shunned. Uh, people made fun of them uh, one way or the other and probably merciless like the way kids can be. And it wasn't, and this um, keeping people in line and shaming people, shaming kids, uh, wasn't just from the kids. I mean, a lot of the teachers uh, were part of this. They were part of the, uh, the, the, the way things had to be, and they make sure that girls were girls and boys were boys. And the girls usually always did better in school, um, and uh, the boys didn't do so well in school. Uh, so in those days, boys were boys, girls were girls, never the twain shall meet. The worst thing you could call a boy on the street or in my neighborhood or in the schoolyard or anything was faggot. That was the worst thing you could say about anybody. Um, <clears throat> there were plenty of other nasty curses, um, all of which uh, you're aware of, but that's what every, boys use that word all the time. It meant anybody, uh, any boy who was weak, who was uh, in any way sort of sensitive, sensitive was a, was a word that uh, people would say and maybe they would spit. <laughs> a sensitive boy was considered a boy who was going to be basically a loser, who was already a loser. And you were more like a girl. You know, if you if you didn't want to like, um, yeah, you know, boys, sports, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, they got into fights. They had a certain way of being. Boys are boys and girls are girls. You know, they are different. But uh, that was the worst thing you could call somebody, a faggot, you know. And occasionally if a girl acted like a boy, they'd call her a dyke. And that's just the way it was. Um, that was the 50s. And I remember how upset, in fact, that the middle class America got uh, about uh, Elvis Presley. To go back that far, right in the, in the mid to late fifties, uh, uh, <clears throat> he was a kind of revolutionary. He didn't just stand on the stage at the mic and sing; he undulated and he shook and he swiveled his hips. He was sexual. Uh, first time a white rock and roll singer had ever acted like that. And there was something about him that had, there was a certain kind of gentleness about Elvis Presley, a certain kind of gentleness. Something that people might even consider feminine, and I think that was part of why people got so mad at him, white middle-class America, anyhow. Love me tender, love me sweet, never let me go. You have made my life complete. And I love you so Love me tender Love me true All my dreams fulfill 
has changed since then. Much more freedom in this country for women, even for gays. Uh, still far from real equality. Just take a look at the makeup of Congress, right? Or jobs and corporations or getting equal pay for equal work. I mean, you know, a long way to go still. But there's, uh, and still there's always that portion of men, thinking of Donald Trump and his uh, supporters, that portion of men that wished women were happy homemakers, docile sex partners and baby producers. That's it. Straight back to the 50s and that's the way it was. Anyway, I wanted to be a lumberjack. Leaping from tree to tree as they float down the mighty rivers of British Columbia. The giant redwood, the larch, the fir, the mighty Scots pine, the smell of fresh cut timber, the crash of mighty trees. With my best girlie by my side, we'd sing, sing, sing. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night, I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. I sleep all night and he works all day. I cut down trees, I eat my lunch, I go to the lavatory. <laughs> On Wednesdays I go shopping and have buttered scones for tea. He cuts down trees, he eats his lunch, he goes to the lavatory. <laughs> On Wednesdays we go shopping and have buttered scones for tea. I cut down trees, I skip and jump, I like to press wildflowers. I put on women's clothing and hang around in bars. I cut down trees, he skips and jumps, he likes to press wildflowers. He puts on women's clothing and hangs around in bars. He's a lumberjack and he's okay, he sits all night and he works all day. Cut down trees, I wear high heels, suspenders and a bra. I wish I'd been a girly, just like my dear mama. I cut down trees, wear high heels, suspenders and a bra. I wish I'd been a girly, just like my dear mama. <laughs> <laughs> it's Monty Python. Um, yeah. Men, men, women, women. Yes, what else is going on, right? Anyhow, for a long time now, like it's 20 or 30 years, right? The evangelicals, uh, mm, the Republicans have been trying to set things back all the way to the 50s. And this war in America between uh, men and women, especially white men, against women, gays, blacks, it's never ending. Latinos, now Muslims, and uh, now some Jews again. And all of this uh, come up really strong since Trump. Uh, and then hippies, right? Used to be long-haired, sandal-wearing, draft-dodging hippies from my day. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. 
We don't take our trips on LSD We don't burn our draft cards down on Main Street Cause we like living right and being free We don't make a party out of loving But we like holding hands and pitching woo We don't let our hair grow long and shaggy Like the hippies out in San Francisco do And I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee Place where even squares can have a ball We still wave old glory down at the courthouse And white lightning still the biggest thrill of all Leather boots are still in style for manly footwear Beads and Roman sandals won't be seen And football's still the roughest thing on campus And the kids here still respect the college dean And I'm proud to be a rookie from Muskogee Place where even squares can have a ball We still wave old glory down at the corner Yeah <laughs> You had to be there, right? You had to be there. But is it any different now? Is it any different? I don't really uh I don't really see if there's if it's any different. I mean I it well it changed for a long time. But uh, it's been coming back up, and it was always—it's always there, right? It was always there. I think a lot of people, maybe liberals and uh, uh, people in the left wing, ignored that it was always there. I mean, we thought because uh, you know we protested, and then the war was over, and uh, there were these revolutions—you know, gay rights, women's rights, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, civil rights—all these things. We thought somehow there was a triumph, and things did change. They evolved in the country. They changed, and they evolved. But uh, these guys, especially these guys and, you know, some of these women were always there. They were always there. And now a lot of these good old boys control the government through their um, witless standard bearer, Mr. Trump, and they control executive, the Congress, and increasingly the courts. Now, I'm not saying this guy, this Oki from Muskogee controls all this stuff. I mean, obviously, it's, that's the... Uh, that's the, the used uh, base of uh, what a lot of people, uh, some politician called people useful idiots who will come out and support and vote for people like that. But really who controls everything is the people who always control everything, the rich, and usually it's rich white men, and they still control everything. Uh, they always did and they always will. It's just that there were a lot more advances, and there was a certain amount of democracy taken for granted. Uh, the evangelicals and the good old boys from Muskogee stayed down when they stayed down. And, uh, but if you look at Trump and his Republicans now, if you look at the, the cabinet, and uh, a cabinet meeting looks like uh, it's all white men. A cabinet meeting looks like a rich suburban country club, like from 1958 or something. This is the revenge. This is the revenge of the white man and some women 
um, on um, everybody that they don't like or they don't think is right. No more Obama and his elitist ways. Time to get back to the real caveman, you know, drag the women around by the hair stuff. Women back down where they belong. And while they're at it, blacks, Latinos back down where they belong, gays, intellectuals, um, all of them, socialists, communists, uh, have to make the homeland. For that, you can read Fatherland Secure. And this is the same shit that's been going on with, uh, with fascists and dictators everywhere and at any time in history. So let me ask you this question. And, I mean, I already know the answer. You know the answer. Is it over the top to compare Trump and his appointees and his great mass of followers to Hitler and the Nazis? Yes, it is over the top. It is over the top. There's something almost like insulting about it at this point. But there is that strain in him, that nascent urge to obliterate anyone who doesn't agree with him or tries to get in his way. And the Nazis were dedicated to purifying Germany and conquering the world to make sure it was purified, too. I mean, I'm reading a book now called All the Light We Cannot See, which is a terrific book. It takes place during World War II, and one of the, the two um, main characters is a, a 14-year-old boy. Um, I really recommend this book, All the Light We Cannot See, and it's a beautifully written book. It's like a great work of art. And one of them is a 14-year-old boy who has um, um, interests in science, and he wants to explore the world, and he wants to use his intellect, and he's sent to a Nazi preparatory school of the worst sort. Brutal and awful. I mean, he's taught all kinds of things he wanted to learn, but he's still at the same time, you know, is up every morning at dawn running with a full pack on. Uh, boys who are weak are beaten up and kicked out of school. Um, you know, they sing songs about the Fuhrer and the Nazis. And it's always the same. The Nazis, you know, were against the intellectuals, the socialists, the homosexuals. Women were especially... Uh, supposed to be Aryan, uh, you know, baby-producing machines and do whatever the men wanted. That's the way it's supposed to be. And uh, gypsies and everybody else, uh, Jews, locked up, weak. They were weak and degenerate. You lock them up and you kill them all, finally. Just leave the Aryan men and the women to do their job of producing, uh, you know, the Nazi race. And as for the Enough of that, right? Um, it's horrible to even hear that song. There's, um, when you go on, um, when you go on uh, YouTube, I was going on YouTube to find all these songs that I wanted to play today, and uh, there's different versions of Deutschland über alles. I mean, Deutschland über alles, Germany over others, Germany over all, however you would translate it. 
uh, is I think it's still in its sort of, um, um, can't use the word purified, but in its uh, updated sort of, um, you know, filtered form to get rid of all that, uh, if they had ever get rid of it, because, you know, I mean, that song sort of symbolizes everything awful about what Germany was once. But I think it's still the national anthem of Germany, I believe. Not... It's not the national anthem. Okay, and the news is just, the bulletin is just breaking news. It's not the national anthem of Germany. But it used to be, used to be. And uh, actually it comes from um, a beautiful melody in a Haydn, I think it's a Haydn symphony <laughs> from 1790-something or other, 1780, whatever. Um, Deutschland über alles. And uh, this whole idea of the homeland and... Uh, there's all kinds of, something happened outside the Turkish embassy yesterday. An astounding thing happened outside the Turkish embassy. It was yesterday or uh, Wednesday. Uh, this, uh, dic- this dictator, this son of a bitch dictator, uh, Erdogan, from Turkey is visiting this country. And of course, Trump, the empty-headed moron who doesn't know the difference between uh, you know, a dictator and uh, you know, what he sees in the mirror, or maybe there is no difference. He doesn't know anything, this guy. He's the stupidest, most ignorant man that was ever president that I remember. I'm sure there were people who would equal to him. But uh, he's visiting with him. And, of course, he welcomes him. You know, he's a great ally. He's a great ally who just, uh, this guy from Turkey, who just locked up in the last several months tens of thousands of people, intellectuals, teachers, the same, you know, the same old, same old. And anybody who protested him, now he's got one political party there. That's it. It's now a fascist country. And Turkey has always had those leanings anyhow. Um, but as far as all this stuff goes, I, I, I always think that there's a, something about <clears throat> this passion that the Nazis have and that a lot of people have, uh, the Oki from Muskogee and the people who are in charge right now in the government, in our government, something about this passion to suppress at all costs, just suppress. It's the weakness or the urges in, in these people themselves. Like Trump is a perfect example of that. Any kind of weakness... Uh, or urge, um, and you know, even an emotion could be a weakness or an urge in a manly man. Uh, these yearnings that seem intolerable. <clears throat> so they locate uh, all of those feelings outside themselves and, and pin it on other people and spend their lives trying to destroy it and these people. Um, it's uh, the worst kind of projection. And Trump is an incredible example of this. He could be in a museum someplace stuffed, and I hope that's very soon, uh, as an example of somebody who's like a little scared little mouse inside who has probably all kinds of feelings and urges. And you can always tell people like this because the man has covered himself with about 500 pounds of blubber. I mean, you know, uh, people who do this, who, who do this, especially I'm talking about men here, they get to be swollen to the size of five times what they usually are. And inside themselves, Inside themselves, they're, uh, they're just little scared people. I mean, they, you know, this is the way it is with Trump. And Trump gets bigger all the time, if you notice. He's turned into kind of a balloon and uh, a parade float that doesn't look too good. But uh, this, and I think a lot of this comes from um, also a gigantic overbalance of testosterone, an overbalance of testosterone. There's no middle ground. There's no blending of the two. And in some Muslim countries, they cover women up and treat them like beasts of burden. Uh, in Turkey, I was in Turkey once visiting my father, and I was driving with him outside of Istanbul, um, maybe even a couple of miles outside of Istanbul. And Turkey, uh, except for the main cities, was always a very, very sort of, I can't say backward, but, you know, an old, old, old-fashioned country. 
And I saw a man walking on the side of the road, looking out the window, and he's walking several paces ahead. He's not carrying anything except a staff, a stick. And he was walking several paces ahead of a donkey. And uh, the donkey was loaded with firewood. And behind the donkey was a woman walking, probably his wife. And this was, uh, this was this. This is the way it was. This is the way it was. And even Judeo-Christian culture, until fairly recently in historical time, women uh, were just seen completely as the tool of the devil. They were snares and traps for men. Um, uh, look at the Garden of Eden. I mean, Eve started all this trouble. Eve started all this trouble, right? It was her fault. She was the one that the devil went to because the devil, uh, who I think we take for granted, is a, is a masculine figure, do we? I don't know. Or maybe uh, the devil is uh, bisexual or something, uh, something equally, or he could even be something else. He's not a real man, but he's sort of a masculine figure. And he went to Eve. He went to the weak one to tempt her. He didn't go to Adam because Adam was, uh, you know, he was a lumberjack. And uh, you don't, uh, you can't uh, try a lumberjack. You had to. So the evil came from, um, from Eve, from the mother of all women. And um, I look at this stuff, and this all goes along with and this, you know, this testosteronal administration we have here, which is always sort of hanging around, uh, waiting to be uh, sucked back up into power. Trump went to military school. Trump went to military school. Did his father send him? I think his father sent him to military school. I don't know. And um, <clears throat> maybe he started out as a sensitive boy. I mean, sometimes do you feel, do you feel a little sorry for Trump? I don't know. Um, anyhow, then he winds up in military school. I don't think he ever asked to go, probably. And so much for sensitivity and emotion, whatever he showed. What was Donald Trump like when he was six or seven or something like that before they shipped him off to military school? For all I know, maybe Donald Trump um, is gay. <clears throat> this uh, <clears throat> total admiration is almost like this idolization of Vladimir Putin, the real he-man, uh, by Trump. I mean, I wish Trump, if he is gay, he could do us all a favor. He could come out of the closet, resign, fly to Russia, and just move in with Putin. I moved on her, actually. You know, she was down in Palm Beach. I moved on her, and I failed. I'll admit it. Whoa. I did try and fuck her. She was married. huge news there. No, no, Nancy. Yeah. No, this was... And I moved on her very heavily. In fact, I took her out furniture shopping. She wanted to get some furniture. I said, I'll show you where they have some nice furniture. <laughs> I took her out furniture. I moved on her like a bitch. But I couldn't get there. And she was married. And all of a sudden, I see her. She's now got the big phony tits and everything. She's totally changed her look. She's your girl's hot as shit. In the purple. Oh. Whoa. Whoa. Yes. Whoa. Oh. Yes, the Donald Escort. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my man. Wait, wait, you got to look at me when you get out of here. This came out during the campaign, right? You remember this now? This came out during the campaign. Who in this country voted for this vulgar, empty-headed son of a bitch? Who voted for him? I don't know anybody who voted for him. I can't imagine anybody voting for him. And now they're getting what they, uh, what they deserve. All this stuff, he comes out and makes a speech. He says, I will be clear, this is a witch hunt. I'm going to continue to work for the people. I'm going to continue to work for the people. Yeah, right. What people? <laughs> Billionaires, like all the people in his cabinet. I don't understand. Why would anybody vote for a man like this? It just means that the country has completely changed. This country, uh, I mean, here's a man who's talking about women in a way 
that men, I'm, yeah, I guess, you know, a lot of men still talk about women in private. I don't know. I don't know any men who talk like that, even in private. But um, I don't know. I can't believe it. But this is the way men talk back in the, you know, back in the day in private and sometimes in public. I remember when I was a kid um, um, and later on, uh, there was this whole thing about construction workers. Construction workers in New York City used to sit on the sidewalk and any time a woman... Uh, Anytime a woman came uh, past them who was uh, even slightly attractive, there was always this, uh, these kind of remarks. Not necessarily that bad, but sometimes that bad. And it was a big thing. And, you know, the world has sort of changed a little bit. It's changed a little bit. Um, I don't know. Anyhow, maybe, uh, maybe we are going back to the caveman days. But who knows what's in the heart of a caveman like, uh, like, uh, like Putin or like Trump? <coughs> There's a man in the funny papers we all know He lives way back a long time ago He don't eat nothing but a bear cat stew Well, this cat's name is Ali-oo Got a chauffeur that's a genuine dinosaur And he can knuckle your head before you count to four He got a big ugly club and a head full of howard Like great big lions and grizzly bears The toughest man there is alive Wearing clothes from a wildcat's hide He's the king of the jungle jive Look at that caveman go He rides through the jungle Tearing limbs off of trees Knocking great big monsters Dead on their knees The cats don't bug him cause they know better Cause he's a mean motor scooter and a bad go-getter He's the toughest man there is alive Wears clothes from a wildcat's hide He's the king of the jungle jive Look at that king man go Look at that caveman go He sure is hip, ain't he? Like what's happening? He's too much Right, daddy, right Hi, yo, dinosaur Right, daddy, right Get him, man Like hipsville I love that song. Like Hipsville. Oh, wow. <laughs> a great. Is that a 50s song? I think that's a 50s song. I think that uh, the group was called the Hollywood, the Hollywood Argyles or something like that. Maybe it was a one-time hit for them. I don't know. 
All this said, it's um, <clears throat> this classic paranoia of Trump, too. I mean, uh, it all goes with all these other problems he's got, and now we've got them because he's a problem for all of us. Projecting his fears and his rage, you know, like, uh, like I was mentioning before, onto other people. And then, because uh, nothing is ever his fault, right? Nothing is ever his fault. Everything is always about him because he's always having to protect himself, that little tiny ego of his, his protect himself with all this bragging and all this uh, horrible behavior and all this, uh, you know, menacing everybody all the time and threatening people and punishing people. Uh, and this thing where he has to swear everybody to utter loyalty because he doesn't trust anybody to like him because he doesn't like himself. But who cares what the analysis is? We have to oppose him as a real force because he's screwing us all up. He's ruining everything. And now he's off in the rest of the world, ruining America's what's left of our reputation, what little bit might be left of our reputation anywhere. Uh, here's, a, here's a definition of paranoia from Wikipedia. Paranoia is a thought process believed to be heavily influenced by anxiety or fear. Now, I understand this. I understand this. I've had this on and off my whole life where I believe where I'm at my worst, where I'm the most scared, uh, the most anxious, where I believe <clears throat> that other people are going to do something to me, that other people are... Um, you know, out to get me. Uh, when I was at my craziest once, I was on a bus and, um, you know, filled with all kinds of mixture of like fear and anxiety and even rage. I was on a bus and uh, this was about two days before I went into a mental hospital for the first time. And I looked around on the bus and there were people looking at me, just looking at me. And there wasn't anything particularly strange about me, although I'm probably radiated nuttiness. And I saw people's eyes turn red, turn red, look like wolves. And their teeth start to grow out of their mouth. And two days later, I was locked up. And uh, anyhow, paranoia is a thought process believed to be heavily influenced by anxiety or fear, often to the point of delusion and irrationality. Does this sound familiar from the newspapers? Paranoid thinking uh, typically includes persecutory or beliefs of conspiracy concerning a perceived threat towards oneself. Everyone is out to get me. So you need complete loyalty, right? Like Comey didn't give him. Um, making false accusations and the general distrust of others also frequently accompanies paranoia. For example, in an incident most people would view as an accident or a coincidence, a paranoid person would believe was intentional. The newspapers are out to get him. So the newspapers are out to get him. So this is the guy in charge of our armed forces until the uh, Republicans step in and remove him, and I hope that's sooner or later, uh, sooner rather than later, I should say, because if we wait around for him to be impeached, that's never going to happen. They're going to have to use this 25th Amendment to go in there and urge him either to resign or to resign him, to say that he's incapable. So this guy in charge of our armed forces and the awful weapons, right, all the weapons, nuclear war, he could start one. Combine this with his insatiable desire, as I say, to be noticed at all costs, and to get rid of any disloyalty. Sounds just like when you read about like Hitler's rise to power. Um, and as I say, you know, again, you have, maybe you could feel sorry for the guy. I do sometimes. Except uh, he's the president of the United States. He's not just a uh, paranoid on the radio like me, you know, where I can't do much harm anymore. <laughs> I mean, the guy already dropped in, re I mean, this is in response or advice from his generals, right? He dropped the biggest non-nuclear bomb in history. The Massive Ordnance Air Blast, or MOAB, also known as the mother of all bombs. Why the mother of all bombs? I mean, why isn't it called the father of all bombs? 
Would mothers drop that on anybody? I don't think so. I don't think so. But uh, maybe the Moab isn't big enough for Trump. I mean, anyway, it's already out of the news. It's way out of the news, and he has to keep the news fresh. He has to keep upping the ante. So what's next? No one likes us. I don't know why. We may not be perfect, but heaven knows we try. But all around, even our old friends put us down. Let's drop the big one and see what happens. We give them money, but are they grateful? No, they're spiteful and they're hateful. They don't respect us, so let's surprise them. We'll drop the big one and pulverize them. The Asia's crowded, Europe's too old. Africa's far too hot and Canada's too cold. The South Let's drop the big one, there'll be no one left to blame us We'll save Australia Don't wanna hurt no kangaroo We'll build an all-American amusement park there They got surfing too No joke, right? This guy is really stupid, and he's really crazy, and he's got to go before he starts World War III. Oh, well. <clears throat> we, uh, more or less regular humans, try to do the best we can to oppose this tidal wave of lies and bigotry and abuse of power. I mean, it's always there, but sometimes it just gets carried away and overwhelming like now. But sometimes, you know, you lose heart. You get tired. You just get tired, and you need help. And then sometimes if, you know, just in time, and it happens a lot in history, just when we really need it, um, a hero appears and leads the way. Where cheering. Where there is so much racket, there must be something out of kilter. I think twixt the Negroes of the South and the women of the North, all talking about rights, the white man will be in a fix pretty soon. <laughs> but what's all this here talking about? That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helped me in a carriage or over a mud puddle or gives me the best place. And ain't I a woman? <laughs> Look at me. Look at my arm. I have plowed and planted I can work as much no man can no man can head me. I gathered in the bonds and ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have bored 
when I cried out in my mother's grief. None but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? When they talk about this thing, what, what's that thing in the head? What they call it? Intellect. That's it, honey. <laughs> what that got to do with a woman's rights or a Negro's rights? If my little cup won't hold but a pint and yours hold a quart, wouldn't you be mean not to let me have my little half measure full? Then, that man there, that night there, that little man in black there, he said, women can't have rights as much as men cause Christ wasn't a woman. <laughs> Where did your Christ come from? <laughs> to do with it. <laughs> if the first woman God ever made was strong enough to turn the world upside down all alone, these women together ought to be able to turn it back right side up again. And now they is asking to do it. The men better let them. That is, um, <clears throat> that's an actress, and I don't know the name of the actress, I should have written it down, who was uh, <clears throat> reading a speech by Sojourner Truth. Sojourner Truth. Look her up on Wikipedia. Um, and I think the speech was sometime around 1850s, 1850s or 1860s, something or other. And uh, a former slave, and she told you her story there. Um, that kind of inspiring thing. And later on, we've always had people like that. Do we have somebody like that now? I'm not really sure. I don't know if we have anybody like that right now. Uh, we had Martin Luther King. Um, maybe I'm missing somebody. Maybe I'm missing somebody right now. But definitely we had Martin Luther King. Maybe we need somebody like that now. We all know what's wrong and what's right, and we know what we need to do. But it always helps to have an inspirational leader, somebody who is like uh, sent by... Uh, I don't know, God, supernatural forces, uh, the times themselves uh, help produce somebody like that. They produce uh, somebody really horrible. You get a guy like Hitler, you get a guy like Trump. Yeah, I know I'm keep making these connections, but uh, I do. So that's the way it is. Uh, and then sometimes you, you find somebody who rises up to, to represent and to oppose these people. And they are great heroes. They are wonderful people. And um, <clears throat> I don't know if we have one right now, but uh, the journalists, <laughs> they're, they're, not, uh, they're not, you know, inspiring speakers, uh, almost any of them, when you see journalists interviewed on TV, but, you know, they, sometimes they're, uh, they're <clears throat> halting and uh, they can't really speak that well because they're writers. They're not, uh, they never meant to be uh, speakers and give speeches. They're mostly, almost all of them, writers. And, uh, but journalism now is becoming incredibly important. Incredibly important, more than it has been since I could ever remember. I mean, now freedom of the press and journalism and journalism that uncovers all this crap and all this shit and just is relentless and doesn't leave these people alone until, you know, what, what it remains of democracy rises up even at the top and gets rid of these people. Uh, but, you know, something you have to watch out for is uh, President Trump. 
You get rid of, I mean, you get rid of uh, um, President Trump. I mean, President Pence is what I mean. When you get rid of Trump, when you get rid of Trump, if you impeach Trump or he resigns or something like that, you're going to have President Pence. And you've got to watch out for that. This guy Pence is uh, an ultra right winger. I mean, he's a fanatic and he has no use for women whatsoever. And he was governor, I think it was of Indiana. He uh, um, wanted to have a bill passed that, uh, and I'm going to remember if it was actually signed by him, a bill was passed, but um, a bill passed that uh, no abortions under any circumstances whatsoever, even rape, even rape. This is Pence. And there's a lot worse about Pence, too. And what's worse about him than Trump is he's actually not stupid and he knows what he's doing. And it makes him even more effective than Trump. In an odd way, Trump is, is somebody you want in there. You don't want him to start World War III. But he doesn't know anything. And there's a limit to what somebody who doesn't know anything at all can really do. I mean, basically, he's a buffoon who wants a lot of attention. Oh, well, enough for this week. Um, that was Sojourner Truth. And uh, maybe next week we'll play a little bit of Martin Luther King. All right, this is Mike Fader. And uh, this is The Turning Point. Uh, we're here every... Friday, live, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, and I will um, be back next week. Allez, venez, Milor, vous asseoir à ma table. Il fait si froid dehors. Ici, c'est confortable. Laissez-vous faire, Milor, et prenez bien. Vos aises, vos peines sur mon cœur Et vos pieds sur une chaise Je vous connais, Milor Vous ne m'avez jamais vu Je ne suis qu'une fille du port Une ombre de la rue Pourtant je vous ai frôlé Quand vous passiez hier Vous n'étiez pas peu fière d'âme Le ciel vous comblait votre foulard de soie flottant sur vos épaules Vous aviez le beau rôle On aurait dit le roi Vous marchiez en vainqueur Au bras d'une demoiselle Mon Dieu, qu'elle était belle J'en ai froid dans le cœur vous asseoir à ma table Il fait si froid dehors Ici c'est confortable Laissez-vous faire, Milor Et prenez bien vos aises Vos peines sur mon cœur Et vos pieds sur une chaise Je vous connais, Milor Vous ne m'avez jamais vu Je ne suis qu'une fille du port Une ombre de la rue Dire qu'il suffit parfois qu'il y ait un navire pour que tout se déchire quand le navire s'en va, il emmenait avec lui la douce aux yeux si tendres qui n'a pas su comprendre qu'elle brisait votre vie. L'amour, ça fait pleurer comme quoi l'existence ça vous donne toutes les chances Pour les reprendre après Allez, venez, Milor Vous avez l'air d'un mot 
royaume, laissez-vous faire du l'or. Venez dans mon royaume, je soigne les remords, je chante la romance, je chante les milor qui n'ont pas eu de chance. Regardez-moi, milor, vous ne m'avez jamais vu. Mais vous pleurez, Milor, ça je l'aurais jamais cru. Eh bien voyons, Milor, souriez-moi, Milor, mieux que ça, un petit effort. Voilà, c'est ça. Allez, riez, Milor. Allez chanter, Milord. Ta 